What's up, cyber and crypto folks? This is the Cybersecurity and Cryptocurrency Podcast. Today is December the 9th of 2019, and this is episode number 96 of our podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at CyberCryptoGuy. And our little disclaimer, all the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely my opinions and do not reflect those of my employer. All right, so now with all the niceties out of the way, wanted to talk specifically about just a couple of things today instead of going over news-related topics. Uh, probably the biggest one that I hear the most about recently, and it's it's very near and dear to my heart as well. I've been really starting to to dive into it quite a bit, and I'm starting to understand more and more how important it is and how important it's becoming. And because the, there seems to be no end in sight. What am I talking about? I'm talking about privacy. Privacy is the big word everywhere you go nowadays. It seems like everywhere you turn, there's a data leak, there's a breach. And all that private data goes out with that breach. It happens all the time. So what what do you do, right? I've said this before. What can you do? So that's really what I've been thinking about quite a bit over the last, I don't know, a few months, thinking about what can I do? Some of the things that I've started doing, although they're not perfect, I've started using online aliases. I've started also changing my name in any online services that I use to use an alias name. That way, if that information does get breached, I don't really care because it's not my real name. I've also been using services like privacy.com for when I'm doing online uh, credit card transactions. So privacy online is basically like a a proxy, if you want to call it that. They'll generate a virtual card number on the fly. You can give it any name, address, and phone number you want, and it will go through. So that's the really nice thing. You can plug in some dummy address in there, and it'll go through still. So when they're asking for your billing address, just plug in whatever, and it'll it'll still authorize it. So that's a pretty cool service. Also helps you stay anonymous uh, online, of course. But then, you know, outside of those few things, I mean, what what else can you do, right? I mean, I can sit here and, and gripe about it all day long, but that's certainly not going to help. And now we see this new law in California, CCPA. And I've actually been tasked at work with, with working on a bunch of this stuff with CCPA. And let me tell you, it's it's not exciting. There's there's so many rabbit holes to go down. We've had numerous conference calls with attorneys telling us all the things that we're going to have to do, yada, yada, yada. And probably one of the scariest parts about this is it's just California. So... If every single state comes out with their own version of CCPA, it's going to be such a mess. And there's no way that somebody's going to be able to manage that, especially if the regulations are different from state to state. I mean, there's just no way. That's going to take a full team of people managing just that. So I don't foresee that happening, hopefully. (laughs) If it does, there might be some riots on your hands. But I'm hoping that the United States comes out with a blanket one for the entire U.S., sort of like GDPR for Europe, but just do that for the U.S. instead, rather than having to deal with CCPA and any other spinoffs that come from individual states. Either way, I've been diving way into CCPA, and of course, if you're a California resident, you are now able to you know, request where your info is and even scrub your info, all that good stuff. So as part of the the you know, the company that's collecting the data, right? You have to know where it's all stored. You have to know if it's going to another third-party vendor. You have to know where they're storing it and whether or not they are going to share it with somebody else. You also have to know if that third-party 
stores it on other some other third-party system. I mean, the rabbit hole just keeps going and going and going. And it's a headache to try to track it all down. I mean, that's there's no two ways about it. It's going to be a headache. So out of all that, we kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, well, where do we start on all of this, right? There's there's so many different places we can go to, you know, to start thinking about this. Where the hell do we start? And we started with something that I used to, to laugh at uh, at my previous career. I was IT security auditor for banks. And I would laugh when people would say, oh, you need to have a data flow diagram. I used to laugh hysterically at that because I thought, what the hell is that for? In the case of CCPA, a data flow diagram that specifically shows where CCPA-related data is coming into your network, what systems it's touching, and where it's going out to, and what out external systems it's touching. That kind of a data flow diagram is a great starting point in this case. So that's that's kind of where we started because there's a lot of rabbit holes that you can go down, but we didn't know what we didn't know, right? We didn't know who, who all was touching the data, where all it was going. So we wrote this data flow diagram, and in that process, we were able to figure out where the data is, where it's going, who's storing it, who's sharing it, all that good stuff, right? So that part's great and dandy. Now you can actually start implementing some controls. You can actually get to the point now where you can, you know, with specific software, you can export that data if you need to. But as you can imagine, the software that's out there right now only works with very specific systems. So there's not a lot of not a lot of compatibility with, with all systems yet. But as this kind of thing gets bigger and bigger, I suspect a lot of the software vendors, vendors will hopefully just build this into their product. That would be way easier for us. But nonetheless, CCPA is is a beating. It's a beat down. And what's funny, I, I really, really was thinking about, you know, what are the loopholes here? And and so I asked, I asked our attorney, I said, well, you know, if somebody's going to just call up and ask for somebody's data, how do we validate their identity? And the attorney said, that's a great question. You actually have to make sure that it's the right person that you're sending that data to. And I'm like, okay, oh, how the hell do we do that? Well, you have to use some sort of a, a third-party uh, ID verification system of some sort. I'm like, okay, great. So let me get this straight. If I'm a California resident and I want to know where XYZ company stores my data, I first have to give my data to this ID verification company <laughs> for them to validate my identity. Then I can go to XYZ company and they'll tell me where my data is. And then when I'm done with that, I got to go back to the identity verification company and have them scrub my data. Like <laughs> you have to give up your data just to get other data. It's 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 quite the mess. But of course you you have to do that, right? I mean, how else are you supposed to give this data to the right person? And so there's just so many ramifications, so many things to look at, and it's so not perfect. I really hope somebody way above my pay grade figures out an easier way to do all this stuff cuz it's a mess. I hope that we can learn a little bit from GDPR that's been out a little longer. So I'm actually starting to dive into that as well to see, you know, what I can, you know, le lessons learned from that, what I can take from that and hopefully be able to use to to make ourselves better with CCPA. But I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? So that's just CCPA. And over the last few months, I've been kind of testing, if you will, uh, some privacy stuff with, you know, various places that I go, right? So I went to the doctor's office the other day. And of course, you know, typical doctor, a new doctor. When you get there, okay, sir, you got to fill out 47 pieces of paper with this clipboard and this pen that barely works. 
come back to us when you're done. And it's, you know, an hour later by the time I've written it all out. And as I was going through all that paperwork, it was interesting because they asked for my name probably eight times in all that paperwork. They asked for my address another four or five times, I want to say. They asked for my social security number at least twice. So all of that data is apparently needed by the doctor, according to their paperwork. So I went to the uh, the front counter. Uh, I had most of it filled out, with the exception of some of the social security number info. And I asked the person at the front counter. And of course, they have no idea what half this stuff is. They're just checking in patients, right? So I asked them, I said, hey, uh, do you guys really need my social? I mean, is this absolutely necessary? And they said, yeah, it's on the paperwork. I was like, yeah, I know that. But what are you going to use my social security number for? Uh, well, I don't really know. <laughs> like, okay, so I'm not going to give it to you if you don't know. She's like, well, we have to have it. I'm like, why? Well, I don't really know. Okay, do you see my point? You don't know why you need it, but yet you're saying you need it. So I'm not going to give it to you. So went through that for a little bit. Finally, the doctor comes out. And I said kind of the same thing to him. And he said, well, it's to validate your identity. He's like, what do you need to validate my identity for? I was like, you have my prescription card. You've got my name and address and phone number. What do you need my social for specifically? Because you can validate me a lot of other ways than using my social security number. He goes, well, it's just something that insurance requires. I was like, and you're sure of that? He goes, yeah, yeah, totally sure. I was like, okay, well, that's great. Because (laughs) I just asked the insurance folks and they said that's completely inaccurate. Of course... You know, some insurance companies might require this. I don't know. But I find it interesting to to hear all these people want to take all this data. And half the time, they don't even know why. And it just makes me laugh because I'm like, I'm, people are just giving this data up. Like, hey, here you go. Just take my social. So then I asked the doctor, I said, okay, I'll, I'll give you this information. But where are you going to keep uh, this paperwork? And what online systems are you going to put all this information into? He said, well, I don't know. <laughs> Like, uh, you don't know. You have no idea where you're going to plug in my social online. You have no idea. The answer was essentially no. He has no idea. He said that he would definitely keep the the paperwork locked up in a locked file cabinet. Oh, that's great. How nice of you. But what online systems is it going to? He never could answer that. And so I told him, I said, okay, I'll give it to you for now, but I would really like a phone call in the next couple of weeks telling me where exactly you put my information and what websites that was on because I want to know these things. He said, okay, yeah, we'll follow up with you. And so far I haven't heard a lick from him. And honestly, I don't really expect to. Of course, I read through this doctor's privacy policy. It's just a canned policy that anybody can get off of Google and really said absolutely nothing. And that's the other, I think really the biggest issue here is we're, we're kind of, I don't want to say like scamming people, but we're, we're misleading people the consumer about privacy. You know, we give them this massive legal document that people are expected to interpret or, you know, not take more than five minutes to read it over when it's this huge document. I mean, we're kind of, I don't know, I guess it just feels like who who has time to sit there and read each and every one of these privacy notices or anything like that? We don't. Nobody does. I can't sit there and read your privacy policy and then turn around and say, okay, well, in your policy, you said X, Y, Z. There's got to be a friendlier way that, you know, we can get consumers to understand it better rather than throwing some legal documents at them and hoping that they can, you know, figure it out on their own. So the public at some point has to be able to trust the various companies that want this data. So that's obviously a big 
a big issue there too. But the companies that are taking in the data, it's their responsibility to protect the data as best they can. And like with this doctor's office, he's plugging it in on some websites online. Who knows what kind of information security controls those online sites have, right? He doesn't even know what <laughs> which ones he's using, <laughs> much less the security controls around him. So anyway, the rabbit holes are aplenty, of course, and I'm sure we could think of a million other ways to chop it up. But at the end of the day, we all have to get on board here and figure out a way to make this easier and better for everyone. Because otherwise, it's going to be a mess for a long time. I think that there will be a ton of job openings for this kind of thing, though. So if you're looking to bust into the privacy industry, now is probably the best time to get in there, right? Right when it's starting to explode, you know? Because who knows how far it's going to go, how far it's going to take off. I mean, it could it could just explode with growth and every company, you know, on the planet is going to need a privacy expert. And I don't think, you know, being a privacy expert means that you also have to be a, an attorney either. But, you know, I know that some of that's built into what attorneys have to do, of course. But, you know, as far as like day-to-day -day stuff that the company needs, day-to-day -day work that the company needs performed in regards to whatever privacy policy they have, well, that's got to be done by somebody who's probably not an attorney. So anyway, there's certainly going to be some job openings here, I would suspect. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's that's a good thing here. But there are lots of privacy issues with anything and everything that we do. And it's 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 amazing. Also, too, you can think of like your, your ISP. This is just one example. Your ISP listens to everything you do. They they look at all the traffic, of course. So I don't need to talk about that specifically. We know we all know that they're watching our DNS queries and selling that kind of information, right? But I heard something the other day from a listener. He he was asking about what's called CGNAT, carrier grade NAT, which is network address translation. And if you're f not familiar with NAT, it's basically uh, how your home network is set up, right? You have one external IP that gets you out to the internet, and then you have tons of internal IPs for all your devices, your phone, your TVs, whatever it is, right? So in doing so, you are NATing that one public IP to many other private IP addresses, right? So anytime you send a request out over the internet, it still looks like it's coming from your public IP, not your internal IP address. So this can be, you know, this is fine for home networks. A lot of businesses do this as well. I mean, this is very common. Netting is basically the best way to help protect your network as well. And so everybody does it, right? Nothing, nothing a big deal there. But now hearing about this carrier grade NAT, basically they're, they're going to start NATing at the carrier level, meaning that they could put you on, a, let's say you're sharing one public IP address between, I don't know, 100 different other people, 200, 1,000. Not really sure it matters, but you'd be sharing a public IP with other people. So, you know, why is that a problem? Well, if somebody that you're sharing that IP address with does something illegal, well, the internet only sees it as that one address. So that one address, again, remember, is going to map back to many others internally there. So on the outside, it looks like it's all coming from this one address. So if somebody's doing something bad on that one IP address, you know, law enforcement could also point a finger at you potentially. That's just one uh, issue that I see there. There's there's a couple others too. And I, I really hope these aren't the case. I haven't done a whole heck of a lot of research into how these things are configured. 
But I think about NAT and how we do it at our homes. You know, we're trying to save public IPs, right? IPv4 is dying. We need all the public IPs we can. I get it. If these, if the CG NAT is set up anything like what my home network is set up like, that is extremely scary because think about it this way. Your, your internal network at your house, your home network, it's wide open, right? You can see all the other devices on that home network, communicate with those other devices on the home network. There's nothing in between you and whatever else it is, right? It's wide open. So one of my, I guess, biggest concerns with carrier grade NAT is that, you know, once you've, your IP has been NATed to that internal IP, what else can you see on that, on that other side of that NATed network? Can you see all of the other people that are also netted behind that same IP? Gosh, I hope not. I mean, that right there is crazy if that's really what's happening. I mean, you're, you're leaving tons of people vulnerable to all kinds of hacks if, if that's the case, right? There's nothing blocking traffic between customers. Once it's on that internal network or it's already been netted, I mean, I'd, I'd be worried that, you know, any other customer could talk to any other customer with basically nothing stopping it. And that's where it gets, you know, very scary for me. I, I really hope it's not being set up that way, but that's a huge privacy issue if it is. If somebody learns that they're just natting the public IP and they can go around and see all the other customers in their little network there, oh my God. Now, again, I hope I'm totally wrong. I hope that they have some sort of isolation once you, I don't know, once it's been natted, I hope there's a lot of isolation really, because if not, people could just run some packet captures, see what everybody else is doing, and even potentially exploit vulnerable devices on that same subnet. So that is quite scary, and I hope that's not really what's happening there, but I guess we'll never really know until I go and physically inspect the carriers and see how they're really doing it, which... It's not going to happen anytime soon. I guess once your IP has been natted, maybe the only protection you have from there is just your home firewall, potentially, which I guess is better than nothing. But, you know, a good hacker armed with that kind of knowledge could really wreak some havoc there. And you want to talk about privacy. There's there's a huge privacy problem right there. And, of course, this is just one example. But also, too, remember, since your home network is so wide open internally... Think about how much more data the ISP would be able to collect about your activities as well. To me, that opens it up to even more things that they would be able to see, mainly because not only are they watching DNS queries, but they're watching every single type of you know traffic of any kind as it goes out the firewall, out of their firewall. That, whereas typically, it's just going out from your public IP straight out over the internet, and the ISP doesn't really see what type of traffic it is, ISP doesn't see anything other than the DNS query. But in carrier-grade NAT, the ISP would be able to see everything you send out of your network. Whether it's you're doing torrenting, FTP, downloading, video streaming, whatever it is, they would be able to see any and all of it. So that right there is a problem. And of course, again, it's just like your internal network at home, right? Your firewall at home can see everything that leaves your internal network at home. Well, carrier-grade NAT would be the exact same way. So there's so many more privacy issues when carriers are doing carrier-grade NAT. And it's, you know, of course, it's just one example with ISPs. I mean, there's so many other examples of privacy problems, but this is a pretty, pretty big one, if you ask me. And, of course, you know the carriers are going to come out and say, we respect your privacy, read our 48-page privacy policy, thanks. 
a policy in which you're going to need an attorney to decipher the majority of. <laughs> oh, man. Privacy. I could go down all kinds of wormholes. I could probably continue going down rabbit holes all day. But there's so many things to think about. And CCPA is, is of course, on my radar now because of all the stuff I'm doing at work. But privacy is getting bigger and bigger. I hope that somehow we can build a better system to keep things more private. But in the meantime, protect yourself. Use an alias online anywhere you can. Don't give out your information unless you absolutely have to everywhere you go. Anyway, I also wanted to talk a little bit about a buzzword that's going around now in cybersecurity and IT in general. It's called RPA, Robotic Process Automation. And these kinds of things make me laugh because... It's sort of like the word cloud. When the cloud came out, everybody thought it was this grand new thing. And, oh my God, we have to be in this cloud. This is amazing. Really, the cloud had been around since the inception of the internet, so there's nothing really new there. And I could say the same thing for this uh, robotic process awesome automation. Automation, that'd be a much better name. Uh, RPA is not anything new. It's not. All it is is using bots to do mundane jobs. Well, how many how many IT admins out there have just set up a script and they schedule it to run every hour? Is this not the same thing as RPA? <laughs> so, and if it is, then why do we need this new buzzword and why are people all of a sudden thinking this is the next greatest thing? It makes me laugh because all the marketing people are able to come up with these terms and somehow able to spin it so that executives thinks it's they think it's something new. Well, this is new. This is great. We we need to jump all over this. When in fact it's it's nothing different than scheduling a cron job to run in Linux every hour. It's nothing different than using a bot. How how often have bots? How long have they been around on the internet? Bots. When you think about a bot, come on, seriously, bots have been on the internet for God knows how long, right? That's that's all this is doing. This RPA. It's like using a bot to do repetitive work. That's all it is. We really need another buzzword. <laughs> What's great is these people make so much money on calling it something new and then selling you on the fact that it's somehow new. And people buy it. It's just mind-boggling to me. It really is. And maybe I guess I'm, I don't know, taking it too far or whatever. But the same thing could be said about cloud. I mean, there's, there's nothing new about a cloud. It, <laughs> they just gave it a word. But if you had AOL email back in the dial-up days, technically you were using AOL's cloud. <laughs> it is nothing new. It's all the same stuff. This RPA thing. Oh, my gosh. I see this buzzword now all the time. And I'm like, oh, my God. Seriously, people? You're using a bot to do mundane work. That's not new. Sorry. Anyway, heads up on that new buzzword. I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more about it in the coming months. But, uh wanted to help you get ahead of it so that you know it's it's complete and utter BS and it's completely pointless and we've been doing it for years, just like the cloud. That's my PSA for the day. <laughs> All right, enough on my uh, cybersecurity and privacy rants. I wanted to jump over to cryptocurrency just real quick. Um, we've all seen kind of some crazy price fluctuations here over the last few weeks, and it's sucked quite a bit, of course, because it's all down from where it was several months ago. As of right now, Bitcoin's trading at 7340 Again, that's, uh, of course, way down from the 13 k we saw several months back. And we're seeing it trade sideways primarily. So far, nobody really knows why it's still trading sideways, but everybody on crypto Twitter is 
posting memes about how everything is trading sideways for so many days and they're losing their minds because of it. But what's going to cause the next big breakout for Bitcoin? You know, what's what's it going to be? That's the thing I always think about and question is what's what's that next big jump that's going to really push it to new heights? What's, what's going to make everybody want to buy in all of a sudden? Of course, I don't have that answer, but there's got to be something. If it's as popular as it's getting, there's got to be something that's really going to launch it. You would think. But aside from that, the uh, other cryptos out there, Ethereum's at 147. Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, Ripple's at 22 cents. Ouch. These all just make my wallet hurt, man. Just reading these off here. But I guess, you know, it is what it is. When Bitcoin's down, it's all down. That's just the way it goes, unfortunately. But certainly sucks to see these low values on on all these cryptos, really, because they were doing so well in 2017, and now all of a sudden we're struggling to trade upwards. On that note, too, on Ethereum, if you noticed over the last few days the Istanbul hard fork happened, uh, you may have not noticed at all. Most of you probably didn't notice because it didn't really change all that much, but they did introduce some new code upgrades. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, go check out those upgrades that they did. You know, a lot of those things don't really affect, you know, the day-to-day Ethereum trader necessarily, but it's kind of more back-end stuff that they're fixing and tweaking to prepare for proof-of-stake coming up. They also, a good news for miners, uh, Ethereum delayed the difficulty bomb, so that's a good thing for miners. They didn't say for how much longer they're going to delay it, but they did delay it. So that does mean that you can still mine for Ethereum, and it's, you know, I guess moderately profitable. It's still not very profitable as it is, but at least now it's not, a, you know, extremely difficult. Once that difficulty bomb drops, it's going to be much, much, much more difficult to mine for Ethereum. So that's coming. I don't know how much longer they're going to push that, though. This is the second or third time they've pushed that difficulty bomb. And I wonder if they're getting lots of pushback from all the miners out there and Maybe a lot of them are threatening to shut off their stuff if they do it. And if, in doing so, it would potentially cripple part of the Ethereum network. Anyway, I don't really know the facts there. just thought that was interesting more than anything. But Istanbul hard fork has happened. Uh, some of the mining pools actually went down over the weekend. If you were doing any mining, you probably saw that Nano Pool had an issue with the Istanbul hard fork. and uh, they, had, they had upgraded their systems prior to the fork, but... Uh, apparently something else broke or whatever, and they had a, a little bit of downtime. It was, it was extremely minimal, and they actually paid people uh, paid people a fee for, for the downtime, so that's nice on them. But the majority of mining pools have fixed all those problems, and they're all on the new Istanbul fork. Also, if you do any mining, there's a software, very popular software out there called Claymore Dual Miner. It, Helps you mine for more than one crypto at a time. Typically, it's Ethereum and something else. So if you're getting error messages on Claymore, since this hard fork happened, it's really easy. Just go out to the uh, Bitcoin Talk thread. Just Google Claymore Dual Miner and it'll pop right up. Go out to that Bitcoin Talk thread and download the latest version of that miner. I think I want to say it's I don't know, on like uh, 15, version 15 of that thing now. Uh, whatever it is, grab the latest version, and that will fix uh, any of those issues with uh, mining for Ethereum. So if you're getting those errors and you're wondering what the heck they are, just get that updated client, and it should take care of it. What's interesting, too, about the uh, the Claymore miner, and I, I used to use that quite a bit because it was 
extremely profitable, of course, at the time, it's 2017, to, to mine for Ethereum and a second crypto. And nowadays, with, of course, the cost of crypto, but also all of these, you know, smaller coins that, you know, at the time in 2017, you could mine for them and, and really, really get a whole bunch of them and make some decent money on it. But nowadays, they have been mined like crazy, and there's, they're much more difficult uh, to get any more of them. So it really makes dual mining with Claymore pretty much pointless. Uh, you're just kind of wasting more electricity than anything else. Uh, but I'd be curious, if you, if you use Claymore's dual miner and you're still mining Ethereum and something else profitably, I'd love to know what that something else is. Because all the algorithms that it supports for that second crypto that you're going to mine, uh, it seems like all of those cryptos have been really just mined to death almost. <laughs> seems like there's very little value in those. Uh, but I'd be curious to know if, if anybody's doing that and which ones they're sticking with. Uh, Verge is one that I did for quite a while. XVG is the symbol. Uh, I liked that one quite a bit. But it's interesting when you look at your power readouts as you enable that second crypto to mine with, I almost double the power consumption when I start doing dual mining. And it was crazy. I was like, dang, that is that is a lot. So I couldn't justify the cost versus that huge output of electricity. So anyway, I've, I've essentially just switched to Ethereum only. And again, I'm, I'm very low level on that totem pile. I'm, I'm just kind of tinkering more than anything, not really making all kinds of money on it. I just like to tinker. But if you're still dual mining and you've got some other coin that I don't know about, I'd love to hear it, to hear what that second coin is. The ones I've looked at are just totally burned up, it seems like. Also on uh, Claymore, I've just been really tinkering with Claymore here a lot lately, and They've got a lot of cool new settings in some of their latest uh, miners, uh, the mining software, I should say. They've got to the point now where you can add what they call straps to the uh, BIOS of the actual cards. And these straps essentially tell the card to use, you know, whatever memory timings to help speed it up, blah, blah, blah. So Claymore actually will apply these straps for you to the BIOS of the video card as Claymore is starting up, so that's interesting. Uh, they also have a way to implement power settings, and I really was starting to tweak with that because I was able to get my power draw. Of course, I, I'm just doing Ethereum now, but uh, I was able to get the power draw from... It was at about 100 watts per video card, and the video cards are RX 580. Getting about 100 watts, sometimes 110, depending on the card. I was able to get each one of those down to 70, uh, some maybe 75, but 70 watts. And that saved me a ton of electricity there, just, just with that one little tweak in Claymore. Of course, it takes a lot of testing and going back and forth. And, you know, different manufacturers will only allow you to get so far on the low voltage stuff, but certainly worth uh, tweaking there if you are trying to use a little less electricity. Claymore does have those features in there where you can fine-tune it to use as little electricity as possible. So I got each one of my cards down to 70 watts or so, and it's made a huge difference in my, uh, difference in my electricity bill, that's for sure. Uh, I've got about six cards mining right now. Seven cards, seven cards. Uh, so you can imagine the, the savings there. All right, folks, that's all I've got for today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at CyberCryptoGuy. 
at CyberCryptoGuy on Twitter. Check me out on there. I retweet a bunch of the articles that we talk about here on the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.